we'll get into the message where we're going forward now. Um, Christmas, New Year's, they are behind us. Oh, so you sound really excited about that. I do have my last remnants of uh, Christmas stuff going. Um, you know, isn't it interesting? Okay, I'm going to go off on a tangent now. Oh, it's interesting. You know, you, you get a shirt for Christmas, and you can't wear it the rest of the year. Only Christmas time does it work. So I got to get one last one in, and I'll put it away until next year. Who knows? Maybe I'll bring it out in the middle of the year. Uh, so this was a gift that was given to me uh, for pastor appreciation and for Christmas. And, and I got, got to wear it early on, but I got to get it in again. And, and so we're leaving Christmas behind us. We're leaving, you know, all the New Year behind us and, and Advent and all that. And it's in our rearview mirror. And now we are looking forward. Looking forward and, and to spring, and, and the next major thing we have is, is Passion Week, you know, the, the triumphal entry. We have Easter and things like that. And so what I want us to do for the next several months is to actually look at that final week of Jesus' life. And so our series is actually titled The Final Week. Some of you, maybe you, you've watched television, you've seen there's a television series called 24. And they take an entire season to do 24 hours of this guy's life. I've never really watched the whole show, but I do know a little bit about it. So that's what we are going to do. We're going to spend the next several months looking at Jesus' final week. The message today, again, is entitled, The King is Coming, and, and Tori read our scripture for us. It's about Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, the last emperor of Germany was Kaiser Wilhelm II. And in 1898... He decided that he was going to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And at the time, the once great Jerusalem, it was in some much serious need of attention. And so some six months before the Kaiser scheduled arrival, the sultan replaced the mayor of Jerusalem with a more energetic official, one who was charged with making the needed repairs, the improvements to the city. To prepare for the Kaiser and his entourage, there was a city that was set up, a tent city set up outside of the city that had 81 tents in it. Inside the city, the markets, they were rebuilt. The city water system, it was repaired after centuries of neglect. Roads along the Kaiser's planned route, they were paved. New buildings were constructed. The old buildings, they were whitewashed. They were painted. They were all repaired. They even rounded up beggars and stray dogs. And they had them exiled to distant villages. It just sounds so weird, doesn't it? And a wall near the Jaffa Gate through which the Kaiser was to enter, it was torn down to allow for him and his entourage to have easier access into the city. On the day of the grand entry, the Kaiser, he entered Jerusalem and he was riding on a beautiful white horse. He was welcomed by numerous dignitaries, journalists and photographers. The crowd, they were cheering and he received a 21-gun salute. Over 100 years later after that, the Tower of David Museum, which is there in Jerusalem, it set up this interactive display about that event. It was entitled, The Kaiser is Coming. The Kaiser is Coming. As the last emperor of Germany entered the city, the crowds, they went wild. But do you realize nearly 2,000 years before that, Jesus entered that exact same city. 
the crowds, they went wild. They, they spread their coats and their palm branches there on the road before him. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They were declaring, the king is coming. They knew that Jesus was the coming king because he was fulfilling a couple of prophecies about the coming Messiah. You know, the king of kings. Now, I remembered, you might remember a little earlier on, I just mentioned that the Kaiser entered through the Jaffa Gate. The gate, it lies on the western, for you all, it's the western side of Jerusalem. In fact, the Jaffa Gate had been the major entrance into Jerusalem for about 300 years. Before that, it used to be that the important gate to Jerusalem, it was on the other side of the city. On the other side of Jerusalem, there was a gate that was called the Eastern Gate. And that Eastern Gate was important to the Jews because there was a prophecy out of the book of Ezekiel, out of Ezekiel, that they believed that declared the Messiah was going to enter into Jerusalem through that particular gate. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, God spoke of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple through the entrance of the east gate of the Lord. But later in Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord as a return to the temple through the gate facing east. So if the eastern gate, if it was so important, why didn't the Kaiser enter through the eastern gate? Well, the answer is he couldn't. You see this, this is what the eastern gate looks like today. That's the eastern gate right there. The gate, it's all walled off. Nobody can get through it. See, about 480 years ago, Suleimani the Great, he had the gate sealed because he realized that the Jews still believed that the Messiah was coming. That they believed that he, the Messiah, that he would enter the city through that gate. And so he had it all walled off. And just in case the Messiah actually did show up, the Muslims, they actually established a graveyard there in front of the eastern gate in the belief that no Messiah who was worthy of the name would defile himself by walking through a cemetery with all those dead bodies. But you know what? It was too late. Jesus had already been there. He had already done that. And that's what this triumphal entry, which we're talking about today, that's what this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is all about. It's all about a declaration that Jesus made that he was the coming king, that he had come to be the king. And that's why the people were so excited. They knew that Jesus had come to be their king. Now let's chase another little rabbit hole for a moment, just, just so you know. When Jesus comes back, and Jesus is coming back, if Jesus wants to enter into Jerusalem, there is not a cemetery, there is not a, a walled-off gate that is ever going to stop him, that is ever going to keep him out. You know, I'm just kind of saying that. So Jesus, 
he entered into Jerusalem through the eastern gate to declare that he had come to be the king. But you know what? It was the way that he entered into the city, the way that he made his declaration that declared the kind of kingdom that he had come to establish. You know, when Kaiser, when he entered into the city, what was he on? Yeah, he was, he was riding on a powerful white horse. It was a mighty steed, one that was worthy of a powerful emperor as he entered into the city. But when Jesus came into town, what was he riding? A colt. He was riding on a donkey. Why would Jesus do that? Well, partly he did it because he's fulfilling prophecy out of the book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Pay close attention here. What did the prophecy of Zechariah declare would be the attitude of the king? This was an attitude of humility. And we know this because Jesus is riding on a donkey. You know, donkeys, I don't know if you've ever really seen a donkey or anything, but they're not all that impressive. Zorro, he didn't ride on a donkey. The Lone Ranger, he never, whoa, on a donkey. Indiana Jones and, and, Jones and all of his crusades, he never rode on a donkey. But Jesus did. Zechariah tells us that he rode on the donkey to make a statement. He had come to be a humble king. And the kingdom was to be a humble kingdom made up of servants, not warriors. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, we're told Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you see, that's important for two reasons. First, Jesus wants us, us, to understand that the church should never be about power or control. There was a man, and he wanted to become an elder at a church because his daddy had been one of the elders. It was his birthright. He deserved it. He saw that the eldership would be a position of prominence and importance, and that's why he wanted the job. But people like that, they are not humble. They're not servants. They see the church as their own personal fiefdom, a place where they can be in charge, they can get what they want. And there are too many times in churches, even today, that people get upset because they can't get their way. They think that the church is their church. It belongs to them. And so they quarrel, they bicker, they fight to try to gain control of Things so that things will go their way, they'll get what they want. Too many times people are seeking the prestige and the importance in the church. So they seek to be an elder or a trustee or, or a leader in some position. 
But that's the kind of folks who would ride in on a white horse, not a donkey. To them and to us, Jesus says, don't be like that. And so first Jesus came humble, riding upon a donkey, to teach us what being Christians is all about, what following Christ is all about. It's all about humility. It's all about servanthood of others. And second, Jesus came on a donkey to prove that he hasn't called us to be warriors. And I got to go on another little rabbit hole for a moment. Sorry. If you've ever been, if you've been in this church for quite a while, you may remember J.D. standing out there. And, and J.D. would stand out there and yelling, are, are you a wussy? Are you a warrior for Christ? And stuff. And his power. It's just amazing to see how God got a hold of him eventually and the things. Are you a warrior or a crybaby? See, some of you remember that. And he stood out there and he yelled at us over and over again before God got a hold of him and used him in a mighty way. There are those who attack Christianity. They do that and they often bring up the crusades. They'll say, just look at how those Christians behaved. And you know what? They're right. The Crusades, the Crusades certainly aren't Christendom's finest moments. But what these critics miss and what they don't always tell us is that the church, it began about 33 AD and the Crusades, they didn't even start until about a thousand years later. A little bit of a comparison or maybe a contrast can be made between Islam and Christianity. Islam, it began with warfare. Muhammad, he built and maintained his kingdom on the blood of those that he had conquered. There's actually a verse in the Quran that says, if somebody will not convert over to Islam, then you should kill them. That mindset is still going on in some of the Middle East even today. And you see, by contrast, Jesus' kingdom, it was built not by the blood of the conquered, but by the blood of the martyred. And that's still going on even today. In places where Christianity is persecuted, people, they are dying for their faith. Christianity, it often grows by leaps and by bounds. But why? Why would Christianity grow in a place where it is persecuted? It doesn't seem to to make a lot of sense, does it? It shouldn't necessarily happen that way. But you know what? It does. And it happens because those people that are there, they realize what they have, and they're often willing to die for it. And then there are others who who see that. And they come to Christ because they see how much Jesus is worth to those who are willing to, to give their lives and to die for Christ. Now, Christians, we don't necessarily go to war for our faith anymore, you know, to to shed blood. We're, We're not about the crusades anymore. But many times there are Christians who will go to war in places like Twitter or Facebook on social media. You know, they feel if they can just insult or offend enough people, then they can win the battle and that would please Christ. But you know what? That doesn't please him. That kind of behavior, it does not please Christ. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. You see, Jesus, he came to change our lives, to give us hope, courage, and the wisdom to build his kingdom the way that he wanted it built. And so Jesus, he came into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry. He came to Jerusalem to proclaim that he had come to create a new kingdom. A kingdom that we call the church. And you know what? He is coming back. And he's coming back to claim us for his own. You know that museum in Jerusalem that had the event entitled The Kaiser is Coming? Well, the Kaiser, he came. He came to Jerusalem. And then he left. He was in Jerusalem for just a few days, and, and then he went to his home, and he left, never ever intending to return to Jerusalem. But the Bible, it's very clear that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will return to put an end to all of the pain and sorrow and death that we experience here on earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it tells us, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There was someone who once asked the missionary, When Jesus returns, what will Jesus shout? And the missionary said, Enough. When Jesus returns, he will shout, Enough. Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough time, enough. But the Kaiser, he didn't come to do that. He didn't come to change the lives of the people. He didn't really even care for the people who were there in Jerusalem. He didn't care about them. He didn't come for them, but Jesus did. Jesus came to Jerusalem for those he loved. And Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for me. There's an old gospel song, and I know many of you know it because you were singing along with it earlier before the service started. The king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpets sounding and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. He's coming for me. You see, Jesus is coming back to claim those who belong to him. But the question this morning is, do you? Do you belong to him? Is he coming back for you? And if he is, are you ready? Because our job right now is to prepare the way. Are you preparing the way for yourself and for other people? 
because the king is coming.